And today we're going to talk about endurance, how we are called to endure. You know, I've been going to church all my life. I remember hearing sermons when I was a teenager, a lot of years ago, about the moral decline of America. Many times the preacher would infer or maybe overly state that the decline in America was because teacher-led prayer was taken out of government schools. Well, personally, I don't know if that's the reason or maybe a contributing factor or something less, something more, but <coughs> excuse me, anyone with a, a sense of biblical morality, I think, can see that there's a precipitous decline in ethical behavior in our country. And at the same time, there's a sharp increase in the remo removal of anything Christian from the public arena. Specifically, what might be po tolerated publicly these days is the type of faith that a person may have that sort of winks at sin. And it's okay to be a person of faith, our culture would say, as long as uh, it doesn't offend anyone, doesn't tell anyone that they're wrong, or it, that calls anything a sin. But other than that, if you have a faith, uh, I guess our country would and our society would say that that's okay. There are many pathways to God, our country would say, unlike what Scripture says. But whatever's good for you, whatever spiritual journey you may be on, uh, our country would say, well, that's fine. Just don't tell anyone else that their pathway might be incorrect. Whatever kind of faith you have, as long as it makes people feel at ease, well, our, our society can put up with that, I suppose. But what's not tolerated in our society is a prophetic faith that exposes sin for what it is and maintains that the only way to God is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That He is the way, the truth, and the life. That He is the only way to the Father. And so that kind of faith is certainly not tolerated. It's seen as bigoted. It's seen as exclusionary. It's just not nice, our society says. Well, back in uh, 2009, a group of 150 Orthodox scholars and Christ, uh, Catholic scholars and evangelical scholars, a big group of people, uh, released a document that made some news back then called the Manhattan Declaration. And it's a statement of Christian conscience on the sanctity of life and traditional marriage and religious liberty. And uh, normally I'm pretty hesitant to uh, hold hands with um, a certain groups of people that call themselves Christians when we disagree on a fundamental doctrine of, such as grace. Um, but the document that they came up with did have a tenor to it that I agreed with. <coughs> Excuse me. It said, in part, we pledge to each other and to our fellow believers that no power on earth, be it cultural or political, will intimidate us into silence or acquiescence. And I would agree with that. It said, we recognize the duty to comply with laws, whether we happen to like them or not, unless the laws are gravely unjust or require those subject to them to do something unjust or otherwise immoral. And I agree with that. It said, we will not comply 
with any edict that purports to compel our institutions to participate in abortions, embryo destructive research, assisted suicide, and euthanasia, or any other anti-life act, nor will we bend to any rule purporting to force us to bless immoral sexual partnerships, treat them as marriage or the equivalent, or refrain from proclaiming the truth as we know it about morality and immorality in marriage and the family. We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but under no circumstance will we render to Caesar what is God's. And I very much agree with that as well. As, as long, though, as Christians bend and bend and bend every time the winds of society blow, persecution remains at an arm's length. We can say, well, we don't want to be persecuted. We don't want to be called names. We don't want to be, uh, be somehow more outcast than we already are. So we'll give in on this issue. We'll give on that next issue. We'll give in on all these different issues. And so we can keep persecution at arm's length. But when we stand firm against the winds of society and the government, we say, here I stand, I can do no other, like Martin Luther did so many years ago, then we face persecution at its strongest. Now, Peter, in the book of uh, 1 Peter, was addressing Christians who were facing a very real persecution for their faith, even though Christianity had not been around for very long at that point. But he was addressing this, and so we're going to uh, look in just a minute at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And as you turn to that particular chapter and those verses, I would say to you that uh, a lady by the name of Linda Bowles recently said, Two basic reasons underlie the attempt to separate America from its spiritual roots. First, the liberal goal of state socialism is incompatible with the citizenry who look to themselves and to God rather than the state for the satisfaction of their needs. Socialism requires that citizens do obeisance to the state as the source from which all blessings flow. The supreme state can have no other God before it. The second reason for outlawing religion derives from the lobbying of those who wish their sins declared virtues. They seek validation of the law and the futile belief that the legal right to be wrong makes wrong right. And I would agree with her statement. As these two reasons for outlawing, outlawing a strong Christian faith become more accepted in our culture, we're going to face an increased amount of suffering like we have not before. And today we're going to discuss how we can endure as Christians, the suffering that may come our way simply because of our faith. In these verses, in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, Scripture says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ and as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone, who ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will to it, if God should will it so, that you should suffer for doing what is right rather than doing 
what is wrong. In this passage, Peter gives us, I believe, six keys to enduring suffering. Key number one, if you do good, you'll usually be rewarded. That's the principle of life. You do the right thing, you're usually going to be the beneficiary of doing the right thing. And so we see that in verse 13. It says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And so from the very outset, the very first uh, thing that should come out of us when we have to face the potential for suffering is, well, I need to make sure I'm doing the right thing. I need to do good. I need to make sure that I'm doing righteous acts, I'm speaking rightly and not wrongly. Too many times, though, I've seen Christians cry, persecution, persecution, oh, poor me. Or they'll say, oh, that's just the cross I have to carry when they themselves have put, them, they've put themselves in a bad situation. You know, when you get a ticket for running a red light or when you get fired at work for always being late, that's not persecution. That's not a cross that you have to carry. So don't whine about that kind of thing. Christian persecution, though, is receiving unjust punishment for nothing more than your faithfulness to God. That's Christian persecution, not receiving the proper outcome of uh, your poor choices. When good things happen to people who are living decent lives, theologians have a term for that. They call that common grace. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you do something good, you get rewarded for it, that's common grace. When good things happen to you because you're living, living a fairly decent life, theologians call that common grace. God's common grace is given to all people. Jesus said, For God makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so God's common grace finds a number of expressions. It, it finds an expression in our own conscience. Let me give you an idea of what I'm talking about here. Every person has a conscience, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. Every person has a conscience. A person's conscience is that internal restraint against evil. Now, you can act in such a bad way that your conscience becomes uh, more and more diminished in your life, and you can't even, it's as if you don't even have a conscience anymore. And some people reach that kind of state where they, they have no conscience. But God designed every person to have a conscience. There's a restraint, an internal restraint within us to keep us from doing evil. We just simply know, well, that's not the right thing to do. That's not the right thing to say. And so God put his own moral barometer in each person's heart. He's written his law on people's hearts. Romans 2 talks about that. Sometimes that barometer itself can become distorted due to our sin, but it's nevertheless there. And so God's common grace is found in each person's conscience. But God's common grace is also found in, in the expression of human government. What do I mean by that? God has set up the government in part to restrain evil, to restrain sin in society. Can you imagine, you know, there's a lot of people these days that uh, are tired of the police. They see some police brutality happening on some video somewhere and people get riled up, people get upset. Can you imagine if there were no police whatsoever? How long would it take for everyone to uh, just really go wild with their behavior? And so their government is there in part to be 
a part of God's common grace to society to restrain evil. And so if we commit evil deeds, the government is there to punish us. But sometimes, God's common grace is interrupted by man's persecution of the righteous. In other words, sometimes you've done nothing wrong, but someone persecutes you simply because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Years ago in Indonesia, some uh, jihad warriors declared a holy war against Christians. And we've seen this type of thing repeated all throughout the world. But in this particular story, uh, these jihad warriors were supported by the Indonesian military units. Christian communities there in Indonesia had been terrorized and subjected to horrific degradations of their humanity and of human rights. One woman, whose name was Sutarsi Salong, on June 19th, the year 2000, in Duma, Indonesia, she saw the military attacking alongside jihad warriors. And she cried out, O oh Lord, help us. And a soldier saw her, and he said, I'll show you how God helps you. And he placed a pistol in her mouth and shot her. Half of her face was blown off as she collapsed to the ground. Miraculously, she survived that. Bone later was taken from her forearm to replace the cheekbone that she had shot off, and she has undergone many other procedures to make a more complete medical recovery. Many pastors in that country had been slain protecting God's people. One of them, Pastor Patiasina, was caught by the jihad along with 1,718 other Christians on an uh, area called Lata Lata. The jihad said that everyone would be slain if the pastors did not identify themselves. And so Pastor Patiasina came forward with three of his elders, and they were promptly beheaded. The rest of the Christians were forcibly mutilated. Now, this kind of activity is not only happening in Indonesia, but other countries around the world. In India, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, Sudan, Iran, China, North Korea, and Vietnam. All of these countries are facing a kind of persecution that is more, much more severe than any that we've faced here in our country to date. But who knows how long it will take before there's widespread Christian persecution in our own country. It wouldn't take much. In that document that we call the Constitution that we think protects our rights, the rights of religion, the rights to worship together, that document to many of the people that are opposed to Christianity is nothing more than an ancient document that can be ignored anyway. And we've seen many pastors, uh, uh, or politicians rather, we've seen many politicians who have decided that the Constitution is pretty much worthless. And so the key number one is understanding that there is goodness that can come from your life and you'll generally be rewarded but not always not always key number two 
Understand that suffering for righteousness brings a blessing. Understand that suffering for righteousness brings a blessing. Verse 14 says, Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. What's it mean to be blessed? It means to be happy. It means to be joyous because of what God has done for you. We must never forget what God has done for us. God has saved us from our sins. God has given us His peace. God has given us His Holy Spirit who never leaves us. He dwells within us. God has given us one another uh, from whom we can uh, experience other people's joy and bear one another's burdens. God has done so much for us, and that's just the things that we experience here in this world. God has done a very great many things for us, and so we can always know that we're blessed. Peter is not talking that, he's not saying in verse 14 that persecuted Christians will one day be blessed after they die. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are currently, right now, blessed. Persecuted Christians that are being persecuted even as we meet in this room, they are blessed right now. Now, how can that be? How can a persecuted Christian be blessed at the same time that he or she suffers? It's because our joy is not based in our circumstances. It's based on the love that we experience every day with Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, what does it say in that verse? For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you're doing the right thing and not receiving a reward because of it, God's face is still on you, and you're still blessed. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for, they, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Key number three to enduring suffering. Do not fear your enemies. Verse 14 continues. Do not fear their intimidation. You know, the government can be pretty intimidating hear a commercial on the radio it says the IRS is the largest collection agency in the world and I guess it really is and if the IRS were ever turned against Christians because of their narrow views on other people and they took our houses they threatened to take uh, away our land we should not fear you know we don't need to fear persecution or our persecutors because they threaten to take away our job. Why? Because we serve the Lord. Our job is serving the Lord. Even if there's a different employer that writes the name on the check that you receive, you really serve the Lord if you're a Christian. They can't take away our money because we don't have any money. It all belongs to God. All the money that you have, it belongs to God. And so if the government comes and takes it away, who's it belong to now? It belongs to God. So don't fear them. 
They can't take away your home because your home isn't here. Your home's in heaven. You might rest your head in one place or another, but this isn't our home. Don't worry that they might take away your home. They can't take that away. They can't take away our freedom because Christ set us free. Even if they were to throw you in prison, jail bars do not make a prison. Not in your heart. Christ has set you free. They can't take away your life because you're secure in Christ. No matter what they try to take away, no matter who is against us, what does Scripture say? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is on your side. And so don't fear their intimidation. Another key is found in that same verse. It says, do not be troubled. Don't get upset about your suffering. Don't get upset about it. If you're persecuted because of your faith, don't get upset about that. Don't be troubled. To be troubled means to be emotionally shaken up, to be disturbed. It means to be undone as a person, to become a mess emotionally. Don't, don't be like that if you face persecution. Jesus said in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And Peter himself, he was someone who knew what it was like to be troubled. Peter was the one, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus uh, was walking on the water. Peter and the others saw him. They were in the boat. Scripture says uh, in, that, in that great chapter that uh, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now Peter, the one writing these instructions to us in 1 Peter chapter 3, he was the one who said in Matthew chapter 14, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. Peter was the one walking on the water before he realized, This is crazy, I'm walking on water. He starts looking around at the wind and the waves. And as soon as he took his eyes off Jesus, he became troubled. He became troubled. Years later, Peter's writing to a group of uh, believers in Rome who are facing persecution. And he says to them in verse 14 of 1 Peter chapter 3, Do not be troubled. Do not, if I could change a little bit of what Peter may have been thinking, do not take your eyes off Jesus. Now, you start getting persecuted... And you start looking at the persecution that's coming at you left and right, guess what? I bet you get troubled. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, 
there's nothing that should trouble you. Don't get upset about your suffering. There's a fifth key in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And it's to keep Christ first in your hearts. And so Peter says in verse 14, don't fear their intimidation. Don't be troubled, but what should we do then? Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience. So that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter says, always be ready to share Christ. If you're persecuted for your faith, if someone puts you down, if you don't get that promotion, if someone lets you know that they don't like you being a Christian, they find that offensive to them, and somehow they begin to turn against you, be ready to share your faith. When you're in a hostile situation, the opportunity to witness for Christ often comes unexpectedly. And if you're not ready to give an answer, you're going to miss an opportunity. The Apostle Paul was someone who was always ready to give an answer. For example, in Acts 22, Paul was in front of an angry mob in Jerusalem. But he was ready to give an answer. And he gave his testimony to that angry, that angry crowd. In Acts chapter 24, Paul was arrested for his faith and he was brought before the governor Felix. And Paul said, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. He gave an answer to Felix when he was called on the carpet there. In Acts chapter 26, Again, Paul made his way before another king, King Agrippa. Again, he gave his testimony there. Always be ready to be able to give an answer for your faith in Christ. And if you don't know what else to say, if you can't come up with something witty, we always think of something witty that we should have said, you know, the next day or the next hour. It's not about being witty. It's not about being clever. It's about being authentic. It's about being real. And it's about sharing your faith. And so if you don't know what else to share, share your testimony because that's something that nobody else can argue against. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Dr. Don Wilton years ago told about getting to serve on Billy Graham's team for a crusade when Billy Graham went to Korea. And one night during the crusade, he was sitting on the platform during the invitation right next to Billy Graham. And Dr. Wilton couldn't help notice that during the invitation, Billy Graham started looking down at his fingernails. He just kept looking at his fingernails. And he thought to himself, I can't believe that Billy Graham is not even paying attention to these people. He, he's not paying attention to the situation. He just keeps looking at his fingernails. He started getting a little bit angry at Billy Graham and puffed up inside of Billy Graham. And uh, just, just then, Billy Graham sort of leaned over to him and he said, you see that Korean lady there that came up to the front? He said, yeah. Billy Graham said, she did my nails today. 
and I was able to lead her to Christ. And that's why he was looking at his nails. Because he's able to turn a simple little common everyday activity into an opportunity to share Christ with someone. Be ready to share your faith at all times. But also, keep your life clean. Keep your life clean. Verse 16 says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. You've got to keep your life clean. doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us in this room are perfect. None of us live a perfect life. But it means simply, if you don't want to be shot at, don't give your enemy ammunition. You've got to be careful there. When the, I'm told when the Allies invaded France in World War II, they cut off the supply lines first of the Germans to the best of their ability. They didn't want the Germans to have good supplies, good ammunition to keep shooting at their soldiers. And so if you don't want people throwing rocks at you, make sure that your supply of rocks is pretty limited in the first place. The sooner that they run out of ammunition, the sooner that you can stop being on the defensive and start taking the offensive with your faith. And so, keep your life clean. Sixth key is simply this. Remember that God's will is always best, even if you suffer. Verse 17 reads, For it is better if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. It's as if Peter's saying there's going to be suffering in this life and you are going to suffer. But it's one thing to be thrown in jail because you stole someone's TV. It's one thing to get in trouble because you committed a crime. It's quite another to be thrown in jail because you're faithful to Christ. Peter says hard times might come your way. Do the right thing. Share your faith. Live a clean life. And if you suffer for it, if it's God's will that you suffer for it, then so be it. It's better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong.